and Mazel Tov. There is this old story of two men who are in a dispute and decide eventually to come see their rabbi. The rabbi's wife, the Rebetzin, lets them into his study, and the first man tells his side of the story. When he finishes, the rabbi says to him, well, I think you're right. And then the second man tells his side of the story, and the rabbi says to him, you know what, I think you're right. And now the rabbi's wife says to him, who's standing right beside, how could it be that both of them are right? And the rabbi looks to her and says, uh, you're right too. To which I would say the rabbi was right. Because we know that a lot of life is built on perception. That we each see the world not as it is, but as we are. And that most of us, most of the time, are trying to do the right thing. I mean, who gets up in the morning and asks, how can I infuriate my wife, disappoint my children, and bewilder my friends? So we fail not because we want to, but because we're not seeing the world beyond our own vision. More often, we hurt despite our intentions and not because of them. But, but remember what I said, more often than not, but not all of the time. One of the most important Jewish historians of the past century was a man named Yosef Chaim Yushalmi. Yushalmi was born and raised in the Bronx. His father had been a Hebrew teacher, and thus the Hebrew name. And after being ordained as a rabbi, Yerushalmi would move on to academia, eventually becoming the chair of Jewish history at Columbia University. His greatest academic work was a series of groundbreaking research and writing on the Spanish Inquisition. But his most widely read book would end up not being about the Spanish Inquisition at all. In fact, his greatest book was a small, perhaps 100 pages total, of an afterthought of writing on the difference between history and memory. Which, when you think about it, seems strange. After all, we record the things we remember, and those things become history. You think that, but it's not actually true. Because lots of things are never remembered and never become history. Or there is history that is written and then rewritten. There are arguments over what may have happened or what this event or that happening might mean. And if you want a better idea of this, read the history books that they're handing out to your children and grandchildren today. Today, we don't say Indian, we say Aboriginal. We don't say Spaniards or the English colonized. We now say they invaded. We don't call people savages, but natives. And that's all history. But Yerushalmi points us to a deeper point. He tells us that when you read the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, when the Torah tells us the Israelites went there and then here and then this happened, he tells us not to pay too much attention to the details that says that they went here or that this thing happened. And I want you to remember that when you're sitting at your seder this Passover, because Jewish history isn't history the way it's taught in schools. Jewish history is memory. It speaks of what happened with the hope that it will make you feel something. It's like the story of a student who comes back to his teacher after a long journey. The student starts to tell him of all the places he went. And the teacher snaps back and says, don't tell me where you've been. Tell me who you are now. That's what memory is. Which is to say that we remember not to master dates, but to grow our souls. 
It is saying that we can learn from what has happened where the errors and crimes aren't points of data, but failures of heart and soul. And I think that's the reason why the Torah is not a record of how wonderful the ancient Israelites were, as it is a record of Abraham's lie about his wife, Isaac's passivity to his children, Jacob's conceit, Joseph's narcissism, Moses' anger, David's lust. The list goes on and on. We study failure and not greatness. But it was Yushami who said it best. What's the point of remembering, he said, if nothing changes? And so that said, now I'm going to share some history with you. 79 years ago, Yabwabni was a town of Jews and Catholic Poles who had lived side by side for hundreds of years. These families had known one another for generations. They went to the same school, played in the same yards and parks. They shopped in the same markets. They were neighbors. On July 11, 1941, when word came of the Gestapo's imminent arrival, the Catholic Poles of Yabwabni rounded up the Jewish men into the town's central barn. There they shot them dead and dumped them into a mass grave. Later that day they drew the women, the elderly and the children, into the same barn and set it afire. When the Germans arrived to Yabwabni, they discovered their work had already been done. The field reports from the Gestapo death squads have them saying that the poles of Yabwabni outdid them. A day earlier, 741 Jews had lived in the town of 1,600 people, and the next day they were all gone. And that is fact. Not written by a Jew or by a Pole, but by the Germans who witnessed the aftermath when they arrived. And this is not to say that every Catholic Pole was a Jew hater. Nothing could be further from the truth. There were many, many kind and courageous Catholic Poles who put their lives at risk to save Jews. But they were greatly outnumbered by those who were happy to see Jews go up in smoke. And the other week, the Polish government's move to make it illegal to refer to Polish complicity in the Shoah was so horrible because there aren't versions of this story. When they made it a crime to refer to the death camps that were located so close to so many Polish cities and towns and whose rail cars carried millions of thirsty and starving people to their deaths, that these camps can no longer be referred to as Polish death camps? It brings us to the question that frightened the, the historian Yerushalmi. It is the question that if nothing changes, then why are we remembering? It is a question that is in need of an answer. And so on this morning, we will now pause and search for it with some more prayer, with some beautiful music, and then, God willing, some more thought from me. Please rise on page 368. It's been said that the Jews were not the first people to, de de to, to, to develop the wheel. It's been said that the Jews were not the first people to develop the wheel, the spear, speaking, writing, or even storytelling. But what the Jews discovered was meaning. So I have two stories I want to share with you to explain how we draw meaning from the past. 
The first is from Elie Wiesel, who wrote of being in Israel just after the Six-Day War. It's hard to remember, but the weeks before the war, the Arab countries surrounding Israel were amassing armies on her border. Massive airlifts of weapons and ammunition were being sent from the Soviet Union. An Arab radio was filled with the call to wipe every Jew from the land just 20 years after the Holocaust, and it looked like it was going to happen all over again. Six days, six days later, it was all over. In a daring preemptive strike, Israel destroyed the armies of Egypt and Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Lebanon. And not long after, Elie Buzel was at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, and he met a Holocaust survivor. Wiesel stood at the wall and wondered, how could it be that such a small country with such a small army could defeat so many? And the survivor said to him, because they weren't alone, they had six million souls alongside them. To remember is to understand that we are messengers carrying the message of those who came before us. We remember and we succeed because we are part of a larger story. Now the second story also takes place in Israel. Just this time, it's outside the old city of Jerusalem on Hartzion, Mount Zion. Once you're there, you have to go to the Roman Catholic Cemetery and you're looking for one grave. It is the grave of Oscar Schindler. The cemetery is filled, but you won't have a problem finding Schindler's grave because it is the only one with stones on it. And that's because of all the Jews who come and visit the grave of the man who by choice saved the lives of 1,200 Jews. Those Jews observe the custom of placing a stone on top of his stone and thereby tell the world that Schindler will be remembered, that he will not be forgotten. You know, by his own admission, Oscar Schindler was a war profiteer, a drunk, and a womanizer. But the, when, the, when the moment came, Schindler is the example of what so many others did not do. And when I go to Israel with students, I always bring them to Schindler's grave because his history is a reminder the crimes of others need not be our crimes. Our task is not to go the way of everyone else. That moral choice, Judaism's greatest lesson, calls us each and every moment. It seems to me the Polish government should be repeating Schindler's words and not denying their history. It was Schindler who said, I could have saved more. I didn't do enough. Shabbat Shalom.